0: This morning's reading is from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 to 20. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Last week we saw that the primary significance of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is that the verdict on Jesus was reversed. And we um, realised how the apostles, in their early sermons in the Acts of the Apostles, hammered home the three truths. You killed him. But God raised him, and we are witnesses. Well, a second significance is that the resurrection of Christ assures us of God's forgiveness. Any psychiatrist will tell you that guilt and health cannot coexist. One said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. For all of us have a skeleton or two in some dark cupboard, Memories of things we have thought, said or done, of which in our better moments we are thoroughly ashamed. Our conscience nags, it condemns and may even torment us. Next time you buy or apply Chanel Number no. 5, remember the words of uh, its designer, Coco Chanel. Guilt is perhaps the most painful companion of death. How do you get away from things which are in your head? How do you experience the truth of that French proverb, there is no pillow as soft as a clear conscience? Well, several times during his public ministry, Jesus spoke words of forgiveness and peace. And in the upper room, he referred to the communion cup as his blood of the covenant poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He linked, in other words, our forgiveness with his death. The Apostle Paul, in uh, verse 3 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, puts it simply, Christ died for our sins. So sin and death are coupled together, evil and its just reward. Death is the penalty for sin, or its wages, as Paul says in his letter to the Christian church in Rome. But here he simply says, Christ died for our sins. And that can only mean one thing. Our default position in life is that we are sinners. That we deserve to die for our sins. We deserve to pay the penalty for them. But that he died in our place for our sins as our substitute on the cross. As John Stott in his probably greatest work, The Cross of Christ, pointed out, if words have any meaning, it can only mean that and nothing else. Christ dying in our place is a reference back in time to the writing of the prophet Isaiah hundreds of years before, where in uh, chapter 53, verses 4 and 5, he predicted the arrival of the suffering servant who would bear the sins of the people. He claimed that he was the divine remedy for our sin. He says, when we read in Mark 10:45, that he gave his life as a ransom for many. In other words, he paid the price to release the captive. And the picture is of us imprisoned by our sins, by our guilt, completely self-centered. And his death on the cross was the ransom price for our release and liberation. He died for our sins. He's therefore in a position to offer us forgiveness of our sins. But how do we know that it worked? How do we know that by his death he achieved what he said he would achieve? And that God has accepted his death in our place as a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice for our sins? And the answer is that if he had remained dead, we would never have known. In fact, without the resurrection, we would have to conclude that his death was a failure. The Apostle Paul saw this logic very clearly he saw the terrible consequences of no resurrection. And he wrote that if there was no resurrection, he points out four of these consequences in verses 15 to 19. The first would be that the apostles are false witnesses. The second consequence of no resurrection would be that believers are unforgiven, verse 17. You are still in your sins. The third consequence of no resurrection would be that the Christian dead, those in our church fellowships who have predeceased us, they will have just perished. And the fourth consequence of no resurrection would be if the believer's hope is only for this life, we are to be pitied more than all men, verse 19. So let's have a look at those in turn. The first one. That you'd have to conclude that the Apostles were false witnesses, verse 15, that they've made it up, that it's just stories. But is that likely? All of them, except the Apostle John, were martyred and even he had attempts made on his life. The only Apostle whose death the Bible records is that of James in Acts 12. King Herod had James, we read, put to death with the sword, a likely reference to being beheaded. The circumstances of the death of all the other apostles are recorded in church tradition, which, of course, is less reliable than the Bible, so we have to be careful how much weight we put on them. The most commonly accepted church tradition in regard to the death of an apostle is that of the apostle Peter, who was crucified upside down in Rome in fulfilment of Jesus' prophecy from John 21:18? Some of the most accepted uh, traditions concerning the deaths of the other apostles are that Matthew suffered martyrdom in Ethiopia, killed by a sword wound, uh, that John, the one who wasn't martyred, but he was sentenced to work in the mines on the prison island of Patmos, where he wrote his prophetic book, um, Revelation. He was later freed, and he returned to what is present-day Turkey, and he died an old man, the only apostle to die peacefully. Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, was a missionary to Asia. He witnessed in present-day Turkey and was martyred for his preaching in Armenia, being flayed to death by a whip. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was crucified on an X-shaped cross in Greece after being whipped severely by seven soldiers. They then tied his body to the cross with cords just to prolong his agony. His followers reported that when he was led to the cross, Andrew saluted it in these words, I have long desired and expected this happy hour. The cross has been consecrated by the body of Christ hanging on it, he said. And he continued to preach to his tormentors until he died. The Apostle Thomas was uh, stabbed with a spear in India whilst he was establishing the Christian church there. Matthias, the Apostle chosen to replace the traitor Judas Iscariot, was stoned and then beheaded. The Apostle Paul was tortured and then beheaded in the days of the evil Emperor Nero in around 67 AD. There are other traditions which aren't really quite as weighty, um, they're therefore not as, uh, quite as historically reliable. But actually it's not so important to know how the Apostles died What is important is that they were willing to die for their faith. If Jesus had not been resurrected, the disciples would have known it. People will not die for something they know to be a lie. The fact that all the apostles were willing to die horrible deaths, refusing to renounce their faith in Jesus Christ, is tremendous evidence that they had truly witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The second consequence of no resurrection would be that believers are unforgiven, verse 17. You are still in your sins. Isaiah in the Old Testament says, there is no peace for the wicked. The wicked never know true happiness, nor do they enjoy inward peace. Whereas if there is forgiveness, then there is the possibility of a quiet conscience. Thomas Akempis was a, a bit of a mystic. He wrote in the Middle Ages, his most famous work is The Imitation of Christ. He writes, preserve a quiet conscience and you will always have joy. A quiet conscience can endure much and remains joyful in all trouble." but an evil conscience is always fearful and uneasy. You may rest easy if your heart does not reproach you, and you are happy only when you have done right. The third consequence, if there is no resurrection, is that the Christian dead have perished, verse 18. Those we have known and loved who have gone before us, well, that's it, nothing. Nothing. Over the Easter period, I quoted from two of the Church's leading apologists for the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, those who've amassed evidence and really looked into it and have the ability to make that kind of evaluation soundly. They were Sir Norman Anderson and Professor Gary Habermas. As well as giving compelling cases for the historicity of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, they both also testified to the solace such a sure and certain hope gave them at times of great suffering for themselves. For Sir Norman, it was the death of his 21-year-old son, and for Gary Habermas, it was the death of his wife and mother in middle age, mother of of their four children. Both comment that not only... Will Christ raise them from the dead to meet Christ? But he will raise them to meet their loved ones once again. Without the resurrection of Christ, as the beginning of a restored universe, our hope that our deceased loved ones are still alive simply just fades away. It goes out the window. And the fourth consequence of no resurrection would be, if believers' hope is only for this life, we are to be more pitted than all men. Verse 19. We will have backed a lost cause. Lost because it's false. There'd be no truth in it. It would be fake. What a bad and sad and sorry investment in our lives. But Paul, in fact, says Christ was raised from the dead and he gives in uh, verses 3 to um, 4, 5 in 1 Corinthians 15, he mentions three individuals and three groups of witnesses. Though there were also six other occasions which he doesn't record, that other apostles record of the risen Christ. So, and by raising him, God has assured us that he approved of his sin-bearing death, that Jesus did not die in vain, and that those who trust in Christ and his uh, work on the cross do receive full and free forgiveness. The resurrection, in other words, validates the cross. Now, all this isn't dry and dusty theology. It speaks as a powerful and relevant voice to us for peace of mind now and peace of mind as we die. Peace of mind now. Having our consciences pricked is a good thing. It flags up our faults and then we act in penitence and receive remission of our sins. But if we don't, if we allow our guilt to become a burden, it can become pathological when it invades our existence and constantly imprisons our life. Now, of course, we have to distinguish between true guilt and false guilt. True guilt is where we have sinned against God, ultimately, by disobeying his biblical commands. False guilt is where we suffer from self-accusation. We feel, for some reason, that we're not as good as someone else that we just don't live up to what they're capable of achieving. Two of our members ran the London Marathon last Sunday, successfully, Angela, who is half my age, so I don't regard that as any kind of threat, but the other one, Philip, is only one year younger than me, and I could not run the I might be able to walk it, but I'd finish on Tuesday, I should think. Um, <laughs> But that doesn't worry me, you see. I've never thought, I've never understood why people do cross-country running, to be honest. But, uh, so I had to find, you know, I I needed some kudos in something else. Well, I could refer to boxing, because I'm old enough to have gone to school when you had to box, whether you liked it or not. But I remembered that, and um, we would be lined up in class. The biggest would be first, and the smallest would be 33rd. It is a great disadvantage to be an even number, especially if you're number two, as I was. Every time I got thumped, I had blood everywhere. Fortunately, the second year, they banned boxing. So I have to look for something else. My nickname was Tank. I was ideally structured to flatten centre-forwards and stopping them from scoring goals, of which I was very effective. So I got my kudos from that. So, we mustn't spend life just comparing ourselves with other people. It's comparing ourselves to Christ and acknowledging that, compared to him, we do fall short and we are truly guilty. Not that, we are as, that we're not as good as some other people um, who are our human peers. We're just different. However, the burden of true guilt can, as the Book of Common Prayer says, be intolerable. Unconfessed guilt can lead to worry, shame, insecurity, fear, unworthiness. And trying to suppress guilt merely transfers the problem to a later date or to another manifestation of it, which could merely aggravate severely the matter. The solution to guilt is to take God at his word, and accept both his diagnosis and his remedy. 1 John 1, to 8-9. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But it promises that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins, and purify us from all unrighteousness. So accept his forgiveness, Accept yourself in Christ. Know that you are a child of God. Awareness of that relationship will help you think straight now. You will have peace with him. And then there's peace of mind as we die. Some people have a very real angst about death. Others simply freeze it out of their thinking. They almost go to death comatose and some are just too tired and are just resigned to it all. Now if we know that we're going on a journey, it is wise to be prepared in advance. So if we become terminally ill, we should involve discussion with our doctors about our end-of-life pathway. But there is a pathway which is beyond simple medical remit. And that is being ready to meet our maker, as it's sometimes expressed. Being at peace with God as we pass from this life into the peaceful presence of life with him forever. Dr Howard Guinness was an ordained medical missionary, a pioneer and a pioneer of student work in Australia. In his book, The Last Enemy, he cites the research done into what was, by the Australian Medical Association, emotional reactions associated with death. Part of the findings that he reports were that least anxiety was shown by the very religious or those of no faith, most anxiety by those whose faith was nominal. And this he backed up with some anecdotal evidence of his, uh, one of his medical supervisors, at St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London, a cardiologist who, he, again he's quoting, whose experience showed that, quote, only patient, the only patients to die with the positive piece of assurance in their eyes were Christians trusting in Christ for forgiveness. He writes, the reasons for anxiety and fear at, at, at death are many and complex. The patient's mental condition is due partly to the characteristics of the disease itself, partly to his own personality and emotional stability, partly to his relationships and home situation and partly to his belief in God. Any maladjustment with those at home or those tending him in hospital can cause unhappiness and restlessness. Indeed, personal adjustment and reconciliation with all men is very important. A man needs to set his house in order when he faces death. And if he has left it until the eleventh hour, he needs a wise counsellor to help him to do so. But where no human help can reach him is in the depths of his spirit, where he is very alone. He has a wide river to cross and can take no one with him on that journey. Happy is the man who knows the comfort of the divine friend with him then. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was the resurrection of an individual, but it was the first step in the regeneration of the entire universe. His resurrection demonstrated that his death for our sins worked, that it was approved by God the Father. We are offered remission of our sins and a place in that new creation upon repentance and faith in Jesus Christ and his work. We should not leave this life without it. Let us pray. Grant us, Lord, the wisdom and the grace to use aright the time that is left to us here on earth. Lead us to repent of our sins, the evil we have done and the good we have not done, and strengthen us to follow in the steps of your Son in the way that leads to the fullness of eternal life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.